Samuel Doss was suffering from painful stomach convulsions and vomiting. His skin was red, his face was swollen, he had lost 16 pounds from his already thin frame. And while his wife advised it was probably a bout of the flu, his doctor thought he should be admitted into the hospital immediately. And lucky for him that he did. After 23 days, he was able to return home, still a little weak, but certainly past the worst of it. And while her husband was mending at the hospital, his doting and ever-present, always-smiling wife spent her days near him quietly reading her Lonely Hearts newspaper articles or the forbidden romance novels that her husband did not approve of, and writing her pen pal, waiting for her husband to be allowed to return home. Though she was only slightly put out at the delay in her schedule, she was convinced no one would ever be the wiser. She would set things right. Once he returned home, she cooked him his favorite meal, but another round of vomiting prevented him from keeping it down. The following evening, after he successfully kept a meal of pot roast down, she cleared away his empty dinner plate, most likely accompanied by compliments to the cook, and presented him with a slice of her famous prune cake along with a freshly brewed cup of coffee, and this time seasoned with enough arsenic to kill ten men. This time, there would be no mistakes. She couldn't waste another day. After all, husband number six was waiting for her in North Carolina. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. Samuel Doss was a good man, a God-fearing man. His former wife and six children all died tragically in an Oklahoma tornado in 1945. And since then, he had been on his own. He kept his finances and home in order. He never drank, never smoked, and would never be caught in unseemly places. His home was free of the trappings of sin such as a television or a radio and he forbade anything that would not expand the mind. There was no place for trashy romance novels in his orderly, gentle but sternly run home. He had all the things one would need in life to be happy, except someone to share it with. When he responded to a query in the Lonely Hearts column of the local newspaper in 1954, he believed her to be the one to fill his home with that missing touch only a woman could provide. And if the pies she sent to him were any indication, he would be well fed to boot. Sam Doss was unlike any man Nancy, who more commonly was known as Nanny, had ever met before in her life. He was good to her. He didn't yell or beat her. He never left her alone at nights or for days at a time. He didn't drink, didn't swear, didn't dance, and didn't listen to music. 
Sam Doss, in fact, bored her to tears. Poor thing, she was just looking for love, and no one seemed to live up to the romance novels and magazine stories she read and expected. So, kill them she must. What other choice did she have? Her first taste of marriage was to Charlie Bragg, who is known these days as the one that got away. In 1921, she was only 16, but her mind was filled with the happy days to come according to the novels she read. She would finally get away from the abusiveness of her father, the crowded space of her five siblings, and into a home of her own. That's not exactly how things worked out. She moved into the home of her new husband and his mother, who turned out to be every bit as controlling and demanding as the parent she had left behind. They started their family quickly, and within four years' time, they had four little ones under their feet. The marriage was not a happy nor a healthy one, and nothing like the books she read. She was meant to keep a perfect house under the supervision of her mother-in-law, cook for seven, clean, sew, garden, can food, and entertain her children. She also learned quickly that Charlie's idea of marriage was to have as many nights away from home as he spent at home. So she followed suit. Why should he have all the fun while she stayed at home? Each were guilty of multiple affairs. If I had to choose a time frame that was pivotal for all involved and the future that followed, it would have to be in August of 1927. On this day, the oldest of the Bragg children, Gertrude, died. The doctor ruled it as food poisoning. At this point, we don't know if it was by the hand of her mother but it was over and done with, with little to no distress. She was healthy at breakfast, gone by lunch. But then, a month later, the second child, Zelmer, also passed away. Also, curiously enough, from food poisoning. And just like that, she was relieved of two mouths to feed, with little to no interruption to her life and the attention and sympathy of the town. Soon after the second death, Charlie left his wife. Some stories claim that he feared for his life, but he must not have been too worried because he took only the youngest child, Melvina, with him, leaving three-year-old Florine with Nanny and his own mother. Charlie returned two years later with a whole new family. A son, Roy, who was coincidentally born only four days after the death of Zelmer, and a daughter, Victoria. He handed Melvina back over to her mother, and they divorced. Did I mention that his mother passed away in Charlie's absence? The small town mourned with Nanny. The loss of two children in one year was too much to bear, but when a husband leaves you, kidnapping one of the remaining children, then returns with a new family, the humiliation was devastating. With nowhere to turn and an entire town offering their support, Nanny went back to her parents' home with her two girls. She soon got a job at the cotton mill just outside of her hometown of Blue Mountain, Alabama. There at the cotton mill, she enjoyed a taste of freedom to hang out at the gin joints while her mother cared for the girls. Not one to give up on love, she began to peruse the newspaper for her next romantic endeavor. Then, less than two years later, Frank Harrelson wooed 24-year-old Nanny with his poetry and complimentary letters. 
He said all the right things, and she added some spice to the mix, letting him know exactly the kind of affection she was after. Along with turning up the heat in her letters, she sent along a cake, and Harrelson needed no more prompting. He drove to the home of Nanny's parents and proposed on the spot. This marriage was going to be different. He was everything she was looking for. It wasn't long after the honeymoon phase was passed that Nanny realized she might have made a mistake. Her new husband was an abusive alcoholic who had served a sentence or two in prison. He was nothing like the wordsmith that spoke words of love to her, but more like a repeat, only with more physical abuse. But, for whatever reason, she stayed with him. Her children grew up, and the youngest, Malvina, married and had a son, Robert Lee Haynes, in 1942. When it came time for her second child to be born, Melvina wanted her mother to be there, and she was. The hospital staff noted how attentive she was while their daughter was in labor. She was there holding her hand and wiping her brow with a cool cloth. The labor was long and difficult for 20-year-old Melvina, but finally she gave birth to a daughter. The hospital staff left the new family to rest under the care of Grandma Nanny. The father was already asleep on a couch, either inside the room or in the waiting room. The information wasn't clear, but there were definitely three generations of Nancy Hazel's lineage in that room. Exhausted and still woozy from ether, Melvina tried to look on as her mother took the child and cradled her close, attempting to soothe the crying babe who seemed unconsolable. Then suddenly, there was silence. Sadly, the unnamed child died within the hour, and Grandma Nanny may or may not have had a hat pin that could have been used to pierce the tender head of the newborn to silence her cries. Two months later, after an argument with her husband, Melvina leaves for a visit with her father, probably at the encouragement of her mother. Her two-year-old son, Robert, was left in the care of Grandma Nanny. And not even two days later, the boy dies suspiciously from asphyxiation. And yet, even though two months later, a check for $500 arrives for Nanny, paying off the life insurance policy she had taken out on her grandson, no one suspects a thing. Or if they do, they keep their suspicions to themselves. No one really has time to speculate as the world is turned on its ear when World War II finally comes to an end. Celebrations are cut short in the Harrelson family, however, when Nanny's husband of 16 years dies suddenly of alcohol poisoning. He was a drinker. The whole town knew it. So when he died after a long and painful bout of vomiting and cramping, no one gave it a second thought and just assumed his liver had just given up on him. Nanny Harrelson was alone once again. Hello listeners, I'm Katie. And I'm Amber. And we are two hosts on Save Me an Isle Seat. A show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. How are we doing? Are you keeping a tally? Well, hang on. We're about to ramp it up a notch. Always on the lookout for love, 
Manny was back to the personal ads of the Lonely Heart columns. It wasn't long before Arlie Lanning entered the picture. It's now 1947, and the two were married in Lexington, North Carolina, a mere three days after meeting. Nanny was his second wife, his first wife dying less than a year prior. But this was it. He was the one, she thought. He was romantic, he was charming, he was a great dancer, and he was wildly affectionate. Unfortunately, when he added alcohol into the mix, he was the same way with every other woman he came in contact with, and he loved his alcohol. Nanny would escape her household for weeks at a time, disappearing and going who knows where. Reports say that Nanny was awfully fond of the spirits and was rarely seen without a cigarette, but for some reason she hated that Arlie was a heavy drinker. Perhaps the womanizing was what she hated, but if we recall the story thus far, Nanny herself was known to be quite amorous as well. But for this marriage, perhaps she really did want more. Arlie would promise to do better with his drinking, and she would return home. And every time she would return, she was the adoring housewife. She doted on his every need, cooking, cleaning, mending, and gardening, and then she was gone again. But according to the town's residents, they saw Nanny as the victim of a womanizing, alcoholic husband. During one of those visits, she went to see her sister Dovey, who was suffering from the effects of cancer. The sister was unfortunately bedridden, but everyone said how Nanny cared for her and laughed with her and held her hand, until the very end. On June 30, 1950, Dovey Weaver gave up the battle with cancer. Nanny would also help to care for her mother-in-law. She would go to her home, help with the shopping, cooking, cleaning, and canning chores. If she wasn't sick before, it didn't take long, and soon the poor, poor woman was finally beyond her suffering, dying peacefully in her sleep. Her son, Nanny's husband, was soon to follow. In 1952, Arlie passed away from heart failure. There was a flu epidemic running rampant at the time, which may have weakened his overworking, alcohol-laced heart. Regardless, once again, Nanny was the grieving widow. The family and the town came to support the Lanning family. At the reading of the will, it was announced that the house Nanny was currently living in, that she shared with her now-deceased husband, was left to his sister. Sadly, the house burnt to the ground. It was lucky that they had an insurance policy on the house, though. The payment was sent to Nanny since her husband had passed. That payment certainly helped her move on to a better life. Bless her heart. Where are we? Husband number four? Ah, yes. Richard Morton from Emporia, Kansas. Nanny switched tactics in her never-ending pursuit of love and romance and decided to hand off her fate to the professionals. They couldn't do any worse, right? This time around, she employed the Diamond Circle Club to find her match made in heaven. And in 1952, they came up with Richard. This was it. He was the one. He was romantic and affectionate, a smooth talker, and he wasn't an alcoholic. He was, however, so romantic and so affectionate that it could not be quenched by just one woman. Rumors have it that he was the textbook womanizer. Nanny was wife number three for Richard, and if we're laying it all out on the table, 
It was only mere months following the death of wife number two before tying the knot with Nanny. Not much is known about the marriage with poor Richard because Nanny's mother came to live with them not too long after they were married. Nanny's father had died the year before <coughs> of unknown causes, and while Nanny was out disappearing for weeks at a time, <coughs> and against better judgment, her mother thought it a great idea to come and stay with this child for a while. <sighs> Not a great idea. Before the end of year 1953, Nanny's mother, sister Addie, and husband Richard were all laid to rest. Side note, both Morton and Nanny had life insurance policies paid out to Nanny, five in total. The monies were not dispersed because by the time the checks would have been cleared, Nanny was embroiled in, well, hang on until after this quick break and let me explain. <laughs> It's going to take a minute. We've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people, just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me, and now I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. Not just the dates and battles. And I've discovered that others do too. So I've created a group in Facebook and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com now to check things out. Allow me to refresh your memory. Samuel Doss, husband number five, is dead. Would-be husband number six John Keel is waiting on the ready in North Carolina, and two life insurance policies are waiting for the last dotted I's and crossed T's before being sent out. We have some dozen or so deaths in the span of 30 years in the wake of this woman's travels that she has not been suspected of any involvement until Mr. Doss. Are you all caught up? Good, because we are rounding the bases for home. Dr. N. Schwelbeam, 
could not understand the sudden death of his patient, Sam Doss, after he was healing so well and discharged from the hospital. He suggested an autopsy. At the time, in 1955, permission was required from the next of kin to perform an autopsy. Little did she know that by agreeing to the procedure, she was sealing her fate. In fact, she encouraged the procedure, saying, quote, Of course there should be an autopsy. It might kill someone else. End quote. As you know, the results found massive doses of arsenic in Doss's stomach. They brought her in for questioning, and for a time she maintained her innocence. But at some point, whether it was from nervousness or she was just so amused with her story, she began telling the details to the police detectives, laughing the whole way. The story goes that she loved the press. She had a smile for all the reporters and adored the attention from the room full of men all wanting to ask her questions. She was happy to answer them. She even went on to give them details of other deaths that they had no inclination about. She seemed pleased regaling the crowd with details of many of the murders. She gave accounts of each husband, what was the breaking point, and how she did it. Rat poison or arsenic were her methods of choice, odorless and tasteless. She was even kind enough to offer up her recipe for prune cake, but most times, she said, she slipped a few spoonfuls into their coffee, except for husband number two. He got rat poison mixed with corn whiskey. When they accused her of murdering for the sake of insurance money, she guffawed all the more. That was merely an afterthought. She was charged with the murder of Samuel Doss and taken into custody. The police detectives then pursued her other claims of murder by calling for the exhumation of her previous husband. They found more than they bargained for. She was tested at an asylum for mental stability, but after only 15 minutes, she was found legally sane and was able to stand trial for murder in the state of Oklahoma. She was only put on trial for the final murder, knowing that the other state jurisdictions would follow suit. The media ate it up. She was given several nicknames as her crimes came to the surface. Arsenic Annie, The Lonely Hearts Killer, Lady Bluebeard, and as her court appearance entertained, they also added Giggling Granny, The Giggling Nanny, and The Jolly Black Widow. No one could quite believe she was capable of a string of heartless murders the way she flippantly admitted to all of them. She happily told the tales of the deaths of four out of the five husbands in the courtroom, leaving no detail to the imagination, but when it came to the deaths of family members, she was a bit more hesitant. She tried lying, but her nervous giggle would bubble up and betray her. She blamed her behavior at first to an accident she was a victim from causing her to have a concussion. But then she blamed her victims. She was, after all, just looking for love, and they deceived her. The judge in the case opted not to impose death by electric chair, saying it would be in poor precedent for her to be the first woman sentenced to death in Oklahoma. She was sentenced to life in prison in May of 1955. The investigation halted and the exhumation ceased. They had more than enough information. And even though the state justice departments of North Carolina, Kansas, and Alabama also charged her with murder, she was never tried outside of Oklahoma. Later in life, 
first husband, Charlie Braggs, loved to regale the newspaper reporters that swarmed to his door looking for an inside scoop how he suspected his wife's disposition all along. He claimed that he knew not to eat her cooking when she was in a foul mood and always thought her cooking tasted a little funny. His ten minutes of fame. Nanny's other family, the few that were left, did their best to fade into the woodwork and did not participate in the media circus. Nanny Doss is only attributed with the murders of four husbands, her mother, her sister, one grandchild, and one mother-in-law. The others will just have to be speculation. Imprisoned at McAllister Prison in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on June 2nd, the 10th anniversary of her conviction, she died at the age of 60 in 1965 of leukemia. On her gravestone, it dares to have engraved beloved mother. Thanks so much for joining me this week, and be sure to come back around for the next episode of Bag of Bones. And thanks too for sharing the podcast. Be sure to add a hashtag when sharing so I can thank you personally. If you need to get caught up on past episodes, be sure to check out my page at Bag of Bones Podcast on Facebook or Instagram, or you can find them at ragtagnetwork.com. We'll see you next week. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere with research by Anna Krunkeberg. Produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited. Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises.